What is up? And welcome back to Zen Business, the show that studies health and mindfulness habits that ultra high performers use to reach the top of their industry and their craft. I'm your host, Jonathan Maxim, Managing Director at KJ Growth Hackers and founder of five digital companies. We've grown these companies to great levels and created an exciting and fulfilling life for our team members, but the truth is, it was much more challenging than we ever could imagine. All right, now let's jump in. What is up and welcome back to Zen Business. I'm your host, Jonathan Maxim, and I am so stoked to have Dr. Patel here with me today. Dr. Sean Patel is currently completing his medical residency, the specialization in dermatology. In addition to his academic endeavors, he continues as the CEO of Prep Expert and appeared on ABC's Shark Tank, closed a deal with billionaire Mark Cuban, and got the investment in his company, and was also honored as uh, Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 list in 2019. Sean also scored a perfect 2400 on his SAT, was the homecoming king, the valedictorian, and did that all, you know, before the age of 30. So, Sean, uh, we're so stoked to have you here today, and, you know, your story really inspired me in my research process, so welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, that's quite the flattering introduction. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had someone do such a well-researched introduction. That was awesome. <laughs> Well, yeah, like I said before we before we went live here, it was it was really fascinating to to do research on you just because, you know, I think it's easy for people to like see a public figure like yourself, a success, and to think, wow, that guy is just like, like my first impression was, wow, Dr. Sean Patel is just really smart. Like he's mm-hmm. respectful, well spoken, articulate, doesn't talk out of turn. This guy's just got it naturally. But then, you know, I did some digging and I saw that, you know, you you came from humble means, your family, you know, you lived in the motel that they ran and there was all kinds of you know, scary things in, in your childhood when it came to, you know, drugs and otherwise around the area in, in Nevada. And mm-hmm. you didn't exactly go to the best high school either. And, and that's that, that really hits home because I think a lot of people underestimate it's easy to just see the tip of the iceberg when they meet somebody like you Mm -hmm. yeah no that can be everyone looks like an overnight success until you take a look behind the curtain for sure (laughs) absolutely how how do you do you experience that often or is it like you know more just once in a while uh you know i think one of the challenges that i run into is trying to explain to people what I do is just so hard sometimes. You know, like you get it, Jonathan, because like, you know that I'm a physician and then I'm an entrepreneur. Um, but depending on my audience, like if I'm talking to someone who's really more in marketing and entrepreneurship, I really just focus on my role as CEO of Prep Experts, the online test preparation company that I owned and started 10 years ago. Whereas if I'm speaking to a physician or a patient, I really just kind of focus on my current role as a, as a physician, a dermatology resident. But, uh, you know, to if, I, if I've got 30 seconds to talk to someone or two minutes to introduce myself, I'm not going to go into my whole background, how I got there and why I'm doing both and all that. Uh, I think need a more of an in-depth uh, conversation with someone to get into all of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope we can you know, at least dive deep on one of these today. Um, you basically got like four full-time jobs. You've got the, the master's in business, you've got the dermatology doctorate, and then you've got prep expert and you've written 10 books and you've got another book in progress. Yeah, no. um, I mean, yeah. (laughs) And when you say it like that, it makes it sound impossible, Uh, but I'm not doing the, the superhuman or the impossible by any means. I mean, it's more in series that I've done things, you know, the, the way that I did my MBA when I got my MBA at Yale, I ended up taking a leave of absence from medical school to do that. Then I came back to medical school, finished up medical school, then went to residency where I'm at now in dermatology. When I was writing books, um, you know, that often happened actually from my business. So Prep Expert, when I first started the company, I never thought I would, you know, start test preparation company and become this SAT expert. 
really all I wanted to do was take my own experience of raising my average SAT score to perfect and turn it into a book. I just wanted to make it highly accessible to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of students on the strategies I used to improve my score and changed my life in terms of scholarships, um, got a half a million dollars in offers, didn't have to pay a dime for um, the University of Southern California where I ended up going. And I just wanted to offer all that value but when I pitched my book proposal out to a hundred literary agents and publishers, you know, everyone rejected me. So I ended up taking all of that material and turning it into a course at Prep Expert. And, you know, that was really kind of the changing point for me, which was owning all of that equity, owning, uh, you know, I believe equity is everything. And, you know, really owning that course, that company. And that's when I stumbled upon entrepreneurship. But originally, I was just, I just wanted to be an author. And so I ended up eventually publishing the book after those hundred rejections, McGraw-Hill, the world's largest education publisher came back to me after they saw how successful my courses and company was going And they said, now you have a platform. We'd love for you to write the book. So I wrote the book. And the first time you do something, it's really difficult. The first time I wrote a book, that was super difficult. But then the subsequent books became easier and easier, as does anything, because you develop a process. And if you stick to your process, it doesn't become nearly as insurmountable as um, the first time around. I think one of my latest books, Self-Made Success, I was able to compile it within a few weeks, uh, mainly because I took a lot of blog posts that I had written uh, previously, and I was able to compile them as, you know, almost half the book. And so there was only half left, 100 pages or so to write. And so I think if you develop a framework and a process and do things in series, it would be impossible to do all four things that you mentioned at the exact same time. Uh, yeah, I don't think um, anyone is, it would be able to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Again, it's easy to, you know, think they all just happened at once and like, boom, they're done. But really the truth is, is that, you know, overnight successes are often made over 10 years. I think in this case, just about 10 years. And that was my question. It's like, do you, do you apportion your days out to, you know, do two hours of writing, four hours of prep expert, you know, going to the doctor's office, you know, in the evening or, or do you kind of multitask? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think that in the ideal world when I'm able to, so sometimes I'm at the whim of my office schedule and the clinic schedule, but in the ideal world, once I graduate residency, I would apportion my days out. And and I've done some of that when I've had more flexibility. So what I mean by that is I like to start every morning with a morning power hour. I believe it's the most important First hour of the day, you really want to do the thing that you don't want to do. What I mean by that, it's the hardest task. And and I know not everyone's a morning person, but I feel like many people will find that their mind is freshest after they've had a good night's sleep. They'll be able to think more clearly. They'll be able to, you know, whether it's writing, they'll be able to write better. If it's reading, they'll be able to read better. So you want to do something that's typically would require a lot of mental energy in the first part of the day. And then as the day goes on, I try to do less mentally taxing things. Um, So at the end of the day, I'll do emails because I don't think that um, replying to emails is the most mentally, I mean, some emails require a little bit more thought, effort, and energy, but replying to emails, I mean, people will get emails and, and I'm sure I've emailed you, Jonathan, at like 10 PM at night sometimes, um, because, you know, if you're, if the first thing you do when you wake up is responding to emails, you're immediately, I believe you're immediately responding to other people's needs. And so email shouldn't be necessarily something that you consider your most important tasks or your hardest work. Now, I know not everyone can put off emails till the end of the day. Some things are urgent, et cetera. But I will say that the 80% of emails are probably can wait, you know, at least a day, if not two days to be responded to, you know, the world worked perfectly fine when it was all by postal mail and 
things took two, three, four business days to get to each other. And I think people these days are just so attached and addicted and uh, to their email. It's, it's almost as addicting as social media, actually, to constantly check your email and try to respond and keep it clean, etc. But you have to have a systematic process in your day. Otherwise, it'll take up all your time and you're not going to get any real work done. Yeah, I think uh, that's why I'm not a huge fan of the fascination with Inbox Zero, because it kind of allows you to be reactive and just like check email whenever you need stimulation whenever mm-hmm. you need something to do, instead of you know, taking 30 minutes at the beginning of the day and looking at your MITs or your tasks and saying, you know, what's important, what's urgent, what do I gotta get done? And lately I've been uh, just leaving Slack closed until about 9, 30, 10. And if I start my day at eight, that gives me about an hour and a half, two hours to just do my MIT, my most important mm-hmm. task. And the world doesn't burn down if I open my Slack at 9, 30 or 10, or my email for that matter. So I try to, nobody's complained so far, I'll put it that way. But I have, yeah. you know, suffered or uh, you know, experienced a world of benefit from and just that quiet focus. Actually, uh, you bring up a, a good point is that fascination with inbox zero. You know, Gmail and Slack, they are built, uh, and this is in a great book that people should read called Hooked by Nir Eyal, where it basically talks about how all of these social media applications are essentially using gamification and the same kind of psychological techniques of, you know, gambling, just like a slot machine, you know, Instagram you scroll um, just like you pull a slot machine and you're not going to hit great content every time. Yeah, I know. It almost does. Right. And you're not going to hit great content every time, but sometimes you'll hit jackpot, right? Like you'll hit some amazing content you like to see. And it's the same way with email. Like the reason on Gmail app on the iPhone or, you know, Slack app, when you scroll down, it refreshes. It's just like pulling a slot machine because your mind wants that dopamine of, I got a new email. It's interesting. Let me see if it's read it. Uh, You know, maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's not. Sometimes you get that really great email, that really great Slack message. And I think pulling ourselves away from that is really the key to producing highly valuable work or what you, what you said, MIT, your most important task. It's not just with social media and video games and Netflix. It's even with our productivity apps. They're trying to be more addicting like email and Slack. Yeah. It just the bottom line is a lot of it becomes reactionary, you know, just like mm-hmm. little pokes, like Come get me, come get me, come pay attention to me. Yeah, the notifications, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that tells me a lot about your mind. I mean, that, that's my big fascination here is how does your mind work? And it sounds like a lot of us kind of overcomplicate it. Like it's, it's simple. Do things in serial order. You know, do the hardest task first or the most important, you know, urgent and important task. And, you know, focus while you do it. Don't have email open. Don't have iMessage, Slack, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I challenge the audience. Like, what, what if a lot of times when I'm doing an hour of like, re- if I know I have to do something really important, and, and I know this is going to be hard for some people, but literally put your iPhone or your Android in a different room than where you're sitting and doing your work, and you will be twice as productive. It's amazing how easy it is to get sidetracked by your notifications on your phone. It's funny, like sometimes, um, you know, my employees or, or someone will say, you're emailing me nonstop right now, or you're, you're doing this or that. Like, why don't you just respond to my text message? And it's like, I don't have my phone in front of me. Like, I don't connect my notifications to my MacBook or anything like that. Because everything today, I, especially for the younger generation right now, Generation Z, like these things are built to distract you. And so if you can figure out little hacks, little ways, even as simple as putting your phone in a different room, you will have that edge up on the competition, especially as an entrepreneur, where you can focus in on the things that really matter and not be distracted by all the things that don't. Yeah, I think that's really the the key outcome here is just focus. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. really how you did it, you know, how you, you started by starting a company and then you went to med school and then you went to business school. You know, these things happen in serial order, which demand focus at the time. Your most fascinating endeavor, of course, to me is prep expert, which, you know, full disclosure, my team helps with the marketing on that. And 
I'm curious about the product because it, it sells like hotcakes. People love the prep expert. So like when I was reading back on it, I noticed, you know, there, that you took on 18 students and you basically taught them a methodology that you came up with and it really hit for them. And I want to know, like, what was that one thing? Like, how, how do you study different? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when I try to think about what makes it so different than a lot of the other test prep companies out there and a lot of the other, because, you know, a lot of people will say, uh, you know, SAT prep or ACT prep, it's a commodity, you know. And I think what makes it really different and what really resonates with our students at Prep Expert is that I really was that average student in high school. I, or I wasn't average. I, I got great grades, but I got an average SAT score to start. And so I started out average and I worked my way and I strategized my way to get a perfect score. And that's the way that I explain all 100 of our strategies. It's like, I don't say, you know, don't use the passive voice on the grammar questions. I say, you know, the word being is always incorrect on the SAT writing section. And that resonates with students. Like they can remember if I see being that word, that answer choice is incorrect. And so it's little techniques, simple mental tricks to help students learn from a student's perspective resonates. Because if you go to, um, you know, a Princeton review or a Kaplan, kind of the the giants and the juggernauts of test prep, you're going to be reading material that is written from math PhD or an English PhD who may or may not have, you know, improved their SAT score. Maybe they were already a genius. Maybe they never took the SAT or the ACT and they're just really good at math and really good at English. And they're going to try to teach you all the mechanics. We really focus on strategy from a student's perspective. And I think that's what students really find different and helpful in our courses. Yeah, it reminds me of this concept that we were taught in the, my undergraduate was in design and it talked about this theory called gestalt theory. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the sum of all the parts is greater than, you know, each individually combined. And I see that theme in, in nature and in business and in school a lot is the little things that you do ultimately like accumulate to the big success. You know, like when I first started making money with my, my company, I set aside just a little about amount every month. And before I knew it, you know, after two, three years, I had a large amount of money saved up. And it's the same mm-hmm. thing. It's like, do we respond to that notification? Or, you know, do we not use passive voice? Passive voice is a writing killer. And, you know, if you if you take those little things into consideration, all those together look like, wow, you've got a really strong writing skill set. But in truth, mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of little tweaks and learnings and, you know, hats. If you yeah. Will. It's just, it's really just compound interest, right? Um, a little bit uh, over time added up together will, will take you so much further and learning those little, little techniques that you think are just so small and insignificant. If you add them up and you compound them, you know, a hundred times, 200 times, and um, you stay again with that process, you know, the practice is so important, uh, whether you're practicing for the SAT you're practicing to become a good entrepreneur, you're practicing on your business, you're practicing as a physician. I mean, practice is just the key in going through the motions over and over with the same process, trying to improve that over time will get you to where you want to be. I really believe that. I mean, I think you're a standing example of that. Um, but like, it's, it's harder to quantify our own intelligence and success because one, there's a hundred different measures for success. And two, like, it's not like dollars, like where you watch the compound interest. But the truth is, is that's why, like, that's the difference between good and great, in my opinion, is somebody who, who understands that I am, you know, building for the long term and it's going to compound. I just need to trust it. That's why I think they say trust the process. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's just harder to quantify. And I think that's why people miss the importance of good routines, doing their due diligence, you know, taking those baby steps. Yeah, I mean, I think it's building those habits early is is really key if you want to be successful early in life, right? So I feel like a lot of the habits that I learned for success, and this is going to sound silly, but were actually, you know, SAT prep when I was self-studying in high school because I would go to the library for eight-hour study sessions. I would put my phone away. 
I would leave it in my backpack. You know, these are things that I still carry on today to be productive in my business, but I learned them very early. And I, and I don't think you have to learn them that early in high school. Maybe you're um, a 20-year-old 20, 20 or a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old listening to this podcast. I think you can learn them now. You know, there's a, a great research experiment I like to always cite, which is the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Basically, they were putting five-year-old kids in a room with uh, one marshmallow. And uh, they were asking those kids, you know, if you can either eat this marshmallow now, or you can wait 15 minutes. And if you wait 15 minutes, we'll give you two marshmallows. And uh, they were basically just testing their ability to have self-control, to not eat the marshmallow and delay gratification. They followed those kids. I think they performed in around 600 kids. One third of those kids, like 200, didn't eat the marshmallow in those 15 minutes. And those, that one third was found to be more successful on a number of life measures, whether it was higher SAT scores, higher salaries, more popular with their peers and teachers, lower BMIs, less drug and alcohol problems. And so, you know, I think self-control really is a key predictor to success. And you don't have to learn it when you're five years old. I didn't learn it till I was in high school. Maybe you don't learn it till you're 50 years old. But once you learn it and you build self-control into your processes, your habits, your routines, I think you have set yourself up for an excellent chance of success at whatever you pursue. Yeah, it's definitely tempting to just like spend money when you make it. You know, it's tempting mm-hmm. to, to not invest and to like, you know, treat yourself when you've worked super, super hard. And I think another good distinction between good and great is, is at that moment of, you know, am I going to take this, you know, vice and this pleasure or am I going to invest it? The concept of investing goes really, really deep because it's a, a psychological concept in my opinion. Um, but you're writing a book with Mark Cuban about how kids should start businesses. And I'm, I'm really curious your perspective on learning, entrepreneurship, like th- these whole things, because you know you support education systems with your business, but you're teaching kids to become entrepreneurs early. What is the, you know, I guess, what's your perspective there? Like, why are you writing a book for children to start businesses? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the book of, for kids to start businesses, the, the, the inspiration behind it is pretty simple. You know, when I was growing up, and I'm sure when you were growing up, Jonathan, you know, you go to school and in school, they give you a few options. And I'm exaggerating here, but they give you a, a limited number of options of what you can be in life. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, a fireman, you know, an accountant, whatever. There's these boxes, right? And so that was kind of the options when you're, when you're growing up and probably still is for many. I mean, I think this is still true for a lot of school systems today in 2020. Um, and so what I think is that we need to start teaching our kids that being an entrepreneur is absolutely a career path that you can take. Like you can say, um, you know, instead of a kid, a five-year-old saying, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, I'd love to hear, I want to be an entrepreneur when I grow up. Like, you know, what, is, what does that mean to that? What is, uh, a five-year-old kid? That's why we're, we've written the book and that's why we're writing the book and getting it out to kids. You know, I think that with that being said, I do think a lot of educational tools are necessary to becoming a great entrepreneur. So I'll tell you the the most important skill, one of the most important skills, and maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, Jonathan, being a successful entrepreneur is uh, being able to write well. I mean, I think that my ability to write that I learned in high school it has served me so well as an entrepreneur because it's helped me write better sales copy. It's helped me write better marketing documents. I mean, a lot of times you have to sell as an entrepreneur, right? And so if you can't communicate that effectively, especially in writing these days with all the advertising, even you know, video sales, all kinds of things, you have to be able to communicate, know your audience, um, and right, well, that's in a traditional educational institution is the uh, ability to write and know English, et cetera. So I think that's super important. And then the other thing that I think is really important to entrepreneurship is having 
a expertise. And so uh, in higher education, you can get expertise. And there, there are multiple ways to get expertise. I'm not saying higher education is the only way. But what I'm saying is a lot of people, I think, go about trying to start a business in the wrong way, which is they go out and say, you know, cryptocurrency is hot or artificial intelligence is hot. And they want to go and start a business in that. But they haven't put in their 10,000 hours learning everything they can about artificial intelligence or about cryptocurrency, right? And so if you aren't an expert in the business that you start, you're going to be basically shooting your foot, you're shooting yourself in the foot before you ever start the race because there are experts who will absolutely burn you in your industry, right? I think that I put in my 10,000 hours both studying for the SAT and writing material for it. And that helped me become an expert to then become great at running a business about it. I think you've put in your 10,000 hours in sales and marketing to then run businesses about that, right? And so I think a lot of people try to skip that step, a very important step, which is gaining expertise. Now you can do that through higher education in the traditional educational system. You can also do that on your own just by reading and learning, but you have to become an expert or experientially through jobs, but you have to be an, become an expert one way or another. There's no shortcuts. That's my opinion. And to those listening, 10,000 hours is basically like four to five years if you're you know, working full-time on something, which I, mm-hmm. I, I, I wholly agree with. I mean, I think I was having a conversation with a friend recently and you know, when I started this business, K&J Growth Hackers, it was very hard to make money and run the business. Today, it's easier to run the business and easier to make money. You know, money accumulates faster and the work is less challenging just because of all the cycles. You know, we've probably run 500 to 1,000 marketing campaigns at this point you know, over the past like five, 10 years. So it becomes a lot easier. And that's why I'm curious about like where you think, is it entrepreneurship or education or a mix of the both? Uh, Which leads me to the question, do you think our education higher ed is broken? Yeah. So personally, I think that you can find, you can find your expertise if you want to become an entrepreneur through higher education, but I think it's only one path of many. So, you know, let's say that I want to start a business in, let's say, let's take artificial intelligence. I mean, there are now degrees in AI, right? So you could do that. Now, there's other ways to learn AI, which is just reading everything you can, everything you get your hands on. There are other ways you can get mentors you can um, take online courses. I mean, there are just so many ways to become an expert at something. Higher ed is just one. I do think that higher education as it stands now is somewhat archaic. I mean, they, it is not moving. Education has been frustrating to be a part of as an entrepreneur because it's one of the slowest moving industries. I think the only edu- yeah. the, the only um, industry that moves slower is probably healthcare, and I'm a part of both, right? It's so, uh, but what, you know, it doesn't respond to the times. I think that actually. COVID-19 has forced a lot of universities to into the 21st century with online education, right? If it wasn't for COVID-19, a lot of these universities right now that are being forced to offer online classes probably never would have for another 10 years. And so what's I mean, that's kind of the quote unquote good part about COVID is it's forced some industries to move a lot faster than they would have. In the case of higher education, I think the good thing that's going to come out of it is people are going to be able to get better education at better universities from better professors from anywhere in the world because it's now forcing them to become online education and online universities, which Previously, you may not have had access to uh, certain courses, certain professors at universities like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, whereas now I think that that will be more of the norm that we see going forward over the next five years. That was one burning question that I wanted to ask you. Are you going to run for office? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I, I mean, I am not built for politics. <laughs> uh, I was watching... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was watching um, 
what was it? Uh, I was watching a show on Apple TV the other day. It was called Boys State. Have you heard of Boys State before? It's basically um, where they take all these high school kids and they make like this mock government. I actually did it when I was in um, in high school in Nevada. You should watch it. The amount of backstabbing and dishonesty that these high school kids display is is a little unnerving. Um, and so, uh, you know, they were just like, well, that's politics. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think I, I'm built to be a politician. <laughs> do, you, do you think you can institute more change through your uh, more professional institutions or your business institutions? I, I love the intersection between government and politics. I think that that it, or yeah, government and uh, business, I mean. And so what I think that that's really interesting. You know, one of the things that's really frustrating about government is all of the red tape around it. And maybe government moves even slower than healthcare because of all the bureaucracy. But I think that if government effectively leverages the private sector with businesses, then there's opportunities to make real change on a very large scale. And so I think that would be something I'm interested in because as an entrepreneur, I think, um, and I'm sure you can speak to this too, Jonathan, I love the freedom of it and the ability to move fast and quickly with ideas. And I think that what's frustrating about the government sector and bureaucracies in general is that you don't have that same level of freedom and you have a lot more red tape, you have a lot more bureaucracy, and it's hard to make real real change and real movement on, on the ideas that you have. So do you think that's a factor of displaced accountability and spread accountability that's not pointed and direct? I think that certainly contributes to it. Um, you know, I think um, with government, a lot of times it's this behemoth of who really is necessarily in charge and, and that can get complicated. When it comes to startups, who's responsible for what? And that helps uh, distribute accountability appropriately. I think all, the other part of it, uh, in addition to the lack of accountability to individuals when it comes to government institutions, is the fact that you need approval for almost everything. And those approvals become very political. And that, that makes it difficult for anyone with a good idea to come in and really have an impact. Yeah, I, I would love to have brilliant minds like yours working in our government, but my, my honest truth is that somebody like me or you isn't that inclined to go fight the red tape. You know, our, our dollars and our time could have a bigger impact by just creating a, a traditional business and you know, reforming education through your company. I mean, you've reformed education for, for probably millions of people at this point. And to me, it's almost like you made more of an impact than the politicians with less of a budget and less time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's one thing that I really do appreciate over the years is that we've been able to do well and do good. You know, we, my favorite part of Prep Expert is hearing from parents and students about how we have. Um, you know, not only increase their test scores, but help them get into the college they want, help them go to college for free, win hundreds of thousands or millions in scholarships, how we've helped them change their perspective on life, how we've helped them change their study habits, um, become more disciplined. That's real impact on real people's lives. And so I think any good business um, is going to make a positive impact on its customers, on its clients. And I think that's the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship is that you can, you can make really good change for people and, and you can do it, like you said, on a shoestring budget. It, it, you don't need millions of dollars. Yeah, it definitely is gratifying. You know, I, I empower humans in a different way, but I still get to watch the impact of, you know, people make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month on the marketing and transform their life and their business and just watch their, their lives blossom. And that's really inspiring to me. And another thing yeah. that I found really inspiring it keeps coming up, especially given all the racial tension lately, is that you know, I'm really the only white American guy on my team. My team's 100% diverse. Uh, we have you know, two guys who are from Latin America. We have two African-Americans. We have you know, uh, 
women, we have Jewish people. And so like, we're very, very diverse. And I take a lot of pride in the fact that I've created jobs for people like this because I didn't come from, you know, a silver spoon background either. And I worked my way up. I mean, I think that's, you know, what creates a high level of appreciation, but that it, it's really gratifying to, to employ people and, and to be the change that I want to see. And I'm, you know, said with all humility like that, it's just cool to, to watch that, to watch them grow up and, you know, to mentor them and so on. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I think about that a lot, you know, similar in my, my team, I've got a very diverse group of highly driven individuals and to be able to empower them, provide, you know, literally food on the table for them and their families and to help them continue to grow both financially as well as as people is super gratifying as a business owner to know that, you know, my literally an idea in your mind has now allowed for this to happen for, you know, a certain subset of people, whether that's one person or that's, you know, 10,000, I think the impact is really special. Yeah, it's a a really fun thing. So, you know, that leads me to the question, like, how do you select your, your team members? How do you interview? Like, what do you look for? Do you require a college degree to work at PrepExpert? So that's a great question. We do not require a college degree to work at Prep Expert, um, which is kind of ironic, right? Given um, our our company, but I don't believe that that's necessarily the best measure of success or talent. Um, really, you know, I think that it, for me, the number one thing is whether that person is qualified for their job or not. And there's a number of measures I, I take to quantify that. But I mean, I do this with whether it's a contractor or an employee. I think one of the best things you can do as an entrepreneur when you're thinking about hiring someone potential is to to get a sample, to get a test, get an assessment of, of their their work. You know, one of the best hires I ever made at the company was my, um, he's a full stack developer, our senior director of technology. And, uh, you know, I, I think I was deciding between him and another guy, this was years ago, like five, six years ago. And with the, the way that I decided at the end is I gave them a sample. I said, you know, build me a mock-up of a landing page. And they both sent it in. And the guy that I um, hired now he just kept sending me new iterations to my email with smaller improvements. Like, and it was like 10 PM at night. And, you know, that showed me everything that I needed to see, which was this guy's going to work hard. He's going to hustle. He's going to keep improving, having ideas. That's what I want to prep expert people that are motivated, ambitious, willing to work hard. And if you can show those traits to me, I am, I mean, and you're qualified to, to, for the job, you're hired. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's, I love looking for those little nuanced indicators of, you know, it's 10 p.m. He's responding promptly. He takes my opportunity seriously. He's you know, eager to be dynamic and, and make changes and, 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 you know, follow up quickly and get it done. There's, there's so much to be told there. You know, I think so. So you've got great talent. You've got great brains. How do you keep your employees inspired? Um, do you do a lot of like pep talks and all hands or, you know, do you just more empower them? How do you keep people like really hooked on the dream? Yeah, I think it's really important to have all hands meetings. So we have one weekly with the entire company where even the customer service and salespeople, they turn their phones off and let it go to voicemail for an hour, basically because it's like a state of the union for the company. It, it gives people an idea of um, where we're at, where we were at last week, where we're going for the next week, where we're going for the next quarter, big, we celebrate big wins. I think that's all really, really important. And, you know, to answer your first question about how do you keep people motivated and excited? I think it's really important to always, you know, I, I used to never believe in this stuff, which was like having a mission and a vision, et cetera. Um, But as I've uh, learned over the years, I think that that can be really powerful. And so over the years, we've developed kind of a tagline at Prep Expert, which really resonates with me, our employees at the company, uh, the students and parents, which is change your score, change your life. And our our mission really is to change 100,000 students' 
lives, you know, and that is really our mission on a day-to-day basis. And we talk about that regularly because we're not just changing test scores, we're really changing people's lives. And if we can do that, you've made people part of a bigger mission, bigger than themselves, bigger than the company, bigger than test prep. And so I think that's really important as a founder or entrepreneur is to to create what your real mission is, keep that top of mind, have all hands meetings, no matter how big your company gets, whether you're the CEO with, you know, everyone at the company, they can tune in, especially now today, you can do it very easily with Zoom to get that face-to-face time, you know, with Zoom or in eventually, hopefully in person again, uh, with everyone at the company is really important because I do think that at the end of the day, if you're a founder, if you're a CEO, people are going to want to hear from you and not, you know, a VP or a subordinate that you hired to kind of run the day-to-day or, or operations for you. And that's still really important. And it only takes, you know, like I said, an hour out of your week. Uh, I think everyone can make time for that, no matter how busy you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember the first company I worked at, there was all this division between sales and marketing and DevOps and all this stuff. And I was like, why don't we just host a a marketing strategy meeting and I'll present the plan to everybody and everyone will be on the same page. He's like, well, my dev guy, my systems administrator is, you know, 50 bucks an hour and this guy's that much and that costs, you know, $10,000 to have that meeting. And he didn't host the meeting, needless to say, I think he brought like four or five people. And of course there was, you know, silos and division within the company and, you can look at that as either an investment or uh, some mm-hmm. costs, I guess. But it was it was interesting to me because I felt that like he was, you know, pinching pennies and spending dollars making a, a business decision like that. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it. That that's one way to look at it, right? Is the yeah. kind of cost of each employee's hour. But the other way to look at it is, like you said, as an investment. Because if the, if that employee works twice as hard per hour. I mean, if they're two times more productive because they attended that all hands meeting and they now know, you know, what the hell is going on at the company and they're inspired by the founder, you know, you, that easily pays for that one hour uh, where they're taken out of their positional role. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a that's great, a great point. point. I think, I think you know, when people are inspired, inspired and directed, directed they, they work more, much, much more effectively. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. Tim Ferriss said, they had a gun to your head, would you do this task right now? Would you get it done? Of course, of course. No matter what the task is, always get it done in less than an hour. You know, it's like, I got to, right? You become creative. Yeah. I remember when I was at a Fortune 500 too, and when we did all hands, I was just excited and eager, you know, meet the other people on the team, see our executives, the people leading the ship forward so I could emulate their behavior and eventually be like them one day. And that like was some of the most rich culture that you know a big company like that has because there's just so many damn employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It, I mean, like you said, it touches on company culture. It touches on motivation and inspiration for your employees. It touches, and you can still make it productive. Like you could still get things done. Um, at our all hands meetings, we talk about upcoming projects and tasks for our most senior people at the company, just so that everyone else can kind of see what the senior people are working on and, and what's really important. And so I still find it a productive use of time. Absolutely. So do you think we need more more employees or entrepreneurs today? Ooh, great question. Um, I think that I would love for everyone to be an entrepreneur. However, I know that's not possible. So I think that people can be entrepreneurial. Even if you're an employee, I think you can be entrepreneurial. And I see these traits in in certain employees at my own company, in my friends and family. I mean, you can be creative. You can have ideas. I see kind of the wheels turning in in some of my employees' heads sometimes. I'm like, wow, that is very, very like creative, entrepreneurial. It's something that, you know, whereas there's other people that they just see themselves as a cog in a wheel, right? And they're just kind of trying to get by with the tasks assigned, never have any other ideas or go above and beyond uh, work an ounce harder than they need to. And so I think if you're entrepreneurial in your job, maybe eventually you can become an entrepreneur. Now, I don't think you have to risk if you have a great job, I don't think you have to risk it. Um, I'm kind of the 
template for, you know, I never gave up being a physician to, to be an entrepreneur. Um, I think you can have a side hustle, especially in today's culture and environment with everything being online and virtual. It's easier than ever to have a side hustle. I mean, before, if you think about it, you know, 30 years ago, there was no email. There was um, only landlines. Um, you couldn't check your, your phone at, at all times of day. You didn't have a powerful computer. So, you know, it is more easy today to have a side hustle if you're an employee than it ever has been. And I encourage it. I, I, my own employees, I encourage it. You know, as long as they're putting in their hours and they are focused on prep expert for their 40 to 50 hours that they work. If they want to work another 10, 20, 30 hours outside of that, and they're getting their work done on their side hustles, I go for it. Like, you know, there's nothing stopping. I don't want to be the person to stop you from having a successful, uh, hopefully eventually business, you know, because I've had so many people who discouraged me from having my own side hustle for so many years. So, you know, I, I don't want to display their behavior. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to think about because when I was working in corporate, there was all these people asking me to write marketing strategies or to help with UX design, stuff like that. And I didn't feel like I was allowed to. I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I already make my money. Like, I, I don't think I can, you know, I've already got a job. It was just this weird, like, mental block. And I'm sure other people deal with that. But, you know, my first company was a fitness app and it was like a free app for people to download. And if I had stuck with that and made it profitable before quitting my job and corporate, that would have been a much more ideal path because I would have learned the basics of business better of, you know, your profit and loss statement, understanding that every business has to make money. You can't just, you know, do the leap of faith. That's really just a Silicon Valley dream. You know, mm-hmm. 1% of entrepreneurs, you know, go through YC and, you know, get the VC investment and all that stuff. So, you know, I think to, to everybody yeah. listening, like, one, just fucking do it. Go, go start some side hustle because, again, you're going to be putting in hours, you're going to be getting better at it, and you're going to be making more money. <laughs> you know, that's everyone's you know, pursuit with career most of the time, at least. Yeah. I, I mean, there's really no excuse. There's like no excuse not to have even a small side hustle. You could, you know, just do some freelance work on Upwork or Fiverr if you, if you just to, just to dip your feet in doing something a little different, making some extra side money. And then who knows, it could turn into um, some freelance work, into a side hustle, into a business, into, you know, a seven figure, eight figure business. Like who knows where it ends, but you got to get started. That's the key. I think the hardest part about anything is getting started, whether it's writing a book, starting a company, starting a side hustle. People get so much anxiety and trepidation around starting that they don't just like, like you said, just, just do it. That's all you have to do. You know, the, the hardest part about writing a book seeing that cursor blinking on a blank page, right? Like, no, (laughs) that's the worst. But once you get going and things start flowing, like you're like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't as bad writing that first sentence or it wasn't as bad writing that first paragraph. It's the same thing with starting a side hustle or a business is you have to go out and do it and just start small. I usually agree there. I think that's part of why we don't feel allowed. We don't feel empowered to to take on those other initiatives because it's just like, how do I, you know, how could I ever start an eight-figure business or a nine-figure business like Prep Expert? And the truth is, it started you writing a couple of lines on paper. So the last question for you, I love to ask this one is, uh, what's your favorite mistake that you made? My favorite mistake? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. My favorite mistake was... Oh, so so my favorite mistake was I, I originally tried to launch prep expert courses in Los Angeles because I was at USC and I was in my senior year of college. So I thought I'm in LA, one of the biggest cities in the world. There's probably so much wealth here. I'll be, you know, very easy, like Beverly Hills is right here, all this wealth. Like it should be easy to get, you know, 10, 15 kids into a course, um, you know, plenty of wealthy parents in LA. But what, you know, 
life slapped me pretty hard when I went six months with no enrollments. I, I was I was putting flyers on cars at Beverly Hills High School and all these other like wealthy high schools. I was like not marketing in the right way. I didn't know anything about marketing at the time, um, you know, and so I, I couldn't get one enrollment. And then I got an email from a student who was attending my, the high school that I went to in Las Vegas. And he said, you know, I saw you're starting courses in LA. I'll enroll if you start them in Las Vegas. And he didn't know at the time I had nothing in LA really. Like I had a website that said I was going to start in LA. And so I just moved the entire company and the courses over to Vegas. He enrolled and then I started getting more and more enrollments. And I realized it's much more efficient and it's much more, you'll have a much higher likelihood of success if you're a big fish in a small pond. You know, I think I really believe one of the reasons I didn't succeed in LA is A, I didn't know the first thing about marketing and I could have used someone like you, Jonathan, at the time. But B, the, the bigger reason I didn't succeed is there's a lot of competition. So in LA, there's probably a hundred test prep companies. In Vegas, there's probably, I think, like four. And so it's much better. And I learned this from making this mistake is don't try to be, you know, in that big pond, be a big fish in a small pond. And what I mean by that is enter smaller markets where there's less competition as an entrepreneur, and you'll have a much higher likelihood of success. Love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's something that I've definitely thought back on in my history is entering a really savagely competitive market like LA Thankfully, our funnel, uh, which, you know, you actually came through our funnel, it, it targets nationwide, all of North America, and we get clients from all over. Um, but there's a yeah. lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to start a business here. It, it's expensive, makes your operating costs high, your employees are more expensive, your rent, your, your office, everything. And those all are Achilles heels to business because profitability really is the equation that you're working toward. Yeah. No, yeah. Don't get me wrong. If it was today, I think all, if I was in LA, no problem. We could do online courses to students all over, but I was trying to start an in-person business. Like you're lucky again, you can do a business with clients from all over the country or the world, but kudos to you for having a successful business in LA. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. I mean, I worked serious OT. Well, Sean, look, I, or Dr. Sean, rather, I, I really appreciate the thought and depth that you bring to every endeavor and your honesty, just like your email, Honest Sean. So I want to acknowledge you for, for sharing incredible insights today. And I just want to give you a chance to, one, plug whatever you're working on and, and tell us how, as a community, we can support you. Is that following uh, an account or is that going on Amazon and buying a book or is that you know, going to, to, to prepexpert.com? How can we support you? Yeah, I think um, if there are any parents out there, especially of high school students, go to prepexpert.com. We've got terrific online SAT and ACT courses for students to help them improve their scores, as well as K through 12 subject test tutoring. And if you're not a parent um, and you're an entrepreneur, as I'm sure many of the people listening are today, I'd love if you checked out my book. It's it's on the wall behind me, but uh, my latest book for entrepreneurs is called Self-Made Success. It has 48 strategies on how to live happier, healthier, and wealthier. And I think your audience would really enjoy it and it would resonate with them. And you can find it on Amazon. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect fit. I will put that in the show notes, absolutely. Well, Dr. Sean, I appreciate everything that you bring to the table and your, your partnership in business and, and your, your open mind and your open heart today. So... Thank you so much for coming on and we'll see you around. Yep. Thanks, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Cheers.